56 years ago this week, a group of men found themselves in dangerous jungle terrain. It is not an unfamiliar story of the Vietnam War, and yet this battle would forever change the lives of those who fought it, many of whom did not return home. Today, we hear the stories from three who did, as they try to help us better understand the Battle of the Yadrang Valley. From the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, Founders of the Wall, this is Echoes of the Vietnam War. My name is Callie Wright, filling in as the host for Michael Crow, bringing you stories of service, sacrifice, and healing from people who still feel the impact of this conflict nearly 50 years later. This is episode 17, The Battle of the Yadrang Valley. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial is made up of more than 58,000 names, each a life cut short by the Vietnam War. The names, because they're listed chronologically, often place service members who died together in close proximity to one another. Panel 3 East has the names of those killed in the first major land battle of the Vietnam War. The names march down to reveal the more than 200 men killed in the Battle of the Yadrang Valley. They were part of different groups, all belonging to the 1st Cavalry Division. As of 1965, the Vietnam War had been a series of battles, and while the events of the war certainly affected service members and their families, the American people saw them as small. All of that would change when the 1st Cavalry Division came into the Yadrang Valley on November 14th. For four days, Americans and the North Vietnamese battled in 100-degree temperatures, ambushing each other at unexpected times and with deadly consequences. LZ X-Ray and LZ Albany would become known as the ground where the Vietnam War escalated. In the end, American service members would declare a victory killing over 2,000 North Vietnamese soldiers. However, the win would cost the lives of over 200 Americans in battle, see many more injured, and completely change the tone of the fighting in Vietnam. This was war. The 1st Cavalry was formed in 1921 in Fort Bliss, Texas, and as their name suggests, they were known for moving around on horseback. As technological advances happened, the 1st Cavalry traded in their horses for more complex machinery, and eventually in Vietnam would become an air mobile unit. Flying Hueys, Chinooks, and other iconic aircraft throughout Southeast Asia, they were the first full division deployed to Vietnam. In 2015, 50 years from the battle, VVMF sat down with a group of them to collect their stories. Our first story comes to us from John Willanus, a soldier turned teacher who found himself face to face with a terrifying rescue mission near LZ X-Ray. I was in B Company 2nd of the 7th, uh, 2nd Battalion, 7th Cavalry. And 
because of because of the situation when we went overseas to begin with, everybody with 90 days or or more uh, who was in the army at the time went overseas. And by the time by the time my drang came up in the, the middle of November, there were a lot of a lot of guys that had were rotating home and gonna rotate home. We had we had a lot of men in the unit. Uh, that were that were old. The point is that the companies were very under strength. When the uh, when the battalion was ordered to go into X-ray by Colonel Moore, uh, they were shorthanded enough that they they got another company from the sister from a sister battalion, and my company commander was uh, Myron Dederick, who uh, uh, was an, an incredible company commander. Uh, Colonel Moore said that he was the best company commander he'd ever known, including himself. So. Colonel Moore liked to use uh, B Company, and so we we uh, assaulted X-Ray with his battalion. And uh, at the time, uh, my company was uh, was protecting some eight-inch howitzers that were uh, track-mounted at uh, Plamy Special Forces Camp, and we got called there to go into into X-Ray, uh, and we assaulted X-Ray uh, late in the afternoon, three or four o'clock, and. Uh, when we when we got there, I remember uh, my Captain Dederick reporting into the Ant Hill with Colonel Moore and finding out where we were supposed to go. And they they sent the uh, uh, they sent the majority of the company, the line com- uh, the line uh, platoons, uh, on one side of the landing zone, and they sent my platoon, the mortar platoon, t- to a to the rear, sort of the rear of, of the landing zone. And they took our FDC section, the fire direction control section, and they consolidated that into, uh, into D Company, first to the seventh. And uh, I was with the, uh, with the three mortar tubes that we, that we had set up. And by the time we got the, the mortar tubes set up and dug very shallow uh, pits for them, uh, it was dark. And I assumed, and everybody in the and my platoon assumed that we had a, a an infantry uh, uh, platoon or something out in front of us, and and and, uh, and we were safely behind the lines. So I dug a small, uh, a shallow, a sh- shallow foxhole this deep in case we got mortared. But I wasn't expecting to fight out of it or anything. And uh, and frankly, I went to sleep. And uh, the next morning, as as began to get light. Uh, I was waiting for it to get light enough to make some coffee. And so made some coffee and the platoon sergeant and I were standing around looking out to our front and the elephant grass was about chest high. Uh, no, we're, we're looking out there and there were, we had our three guns placed, one, one, to our, one to our left, one in the center and one to the right. And we're looking over and we could just see the tops of the, uh, of the mortars above the grass. And I, I saw a, a, a soldier in, uh, about 30 yards in front of us in a khaki uniform and a pith helmet. And he was up, he was standing in front of us and we saw him run across and a couple other soldiers dressed like that came, came across. And having never seen a North Vietnamese soldier, uh, you know, platoon sergeant and I looked at one another and said, who, who are those guys? Are those the Australians? Are they out in front of us? Right? And then we saw a machine gun, a light machine gun run across to our front. And when they opened up on us, we realized that they were the North Vietnamese. So no, there wasn't anybody in front of us, and uh, and the mortar platoon had a little firefight that that uh, at that point um, we ended up with with one killed and five wounded, and and uh, that Sergeant Buzo Alvarez from Ponce, uh, Puerto Rico was, uh, and he was on the on the left, and uh, when the when the shooting started early on, we had uh, the the soldiers that were with Buzo Alvarez. Um, 
tried to run back to where uh, where I and the platoon sergeant and his RTO were were standing, and uh, and back to the uh, to Sergeant Ratlich's number one gun, which was a little less forward than they were, and uh, the first soldier to run back was Fred Bush, and uh, Fred Bush got back safely, and and uh, and then uh, Jose Gonzalez. Uh, came running back towards us and and uh, he got shot by the machine gun several times not killed but severely wounded and then we uh, we asked to you know if there was anybody else out there and uh, oh there was just sergeant ratledge and no one was was sure whether or not sergeant ratledge was uh, was dead or alive and the the machine gun was very very close to his his mortar so we didn't dare throw hand grenades at it because we were afraid we'd kill Sergeant Ratledge. We were debating about what to do about it, and and uh, the uh, Sergeant Esselton's RTO's radio telephone telephone operator, Virgie Hibbler, uh, threw down his his pack and uh, and started crawling out to uh, Buzo Alvarez's uh, foxhole. So I was there. I, I couldn't let him go by himself. So I followed Virgie's uh, heels out to uh, out to the foxhole, and we got out to the foxhole and. There was Buzo Alvarez laying on the side of the mortar pit, and uh, he was dead. So uh, the the machine gun, it turned out, was was right on the edge of his his uh, the mortar pit, and and we were literally uh, almost within touching distance of it, but it didn't see us. So we crawled back and we said, uh, "Alvarez is dead." So you know we can throw hand grenades, and somebody said, "Well, where was he wounded?" And I said. Oh, I don't know. I didn't see a wound. So I said, "Well, how do you know he was dead?" Crawled back out to the uh, to the border pit again, and and at that point, the machine gun was firing, and 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 we held a mirror under his nose. He was still dead, but we didn't want to take the chance of somebody accusing us of having having him not dead again. So we we dragged him back, and he was just, he was a big man. And as we started dragging him, the machine gun uh, noticed that uh, we were doing we were. There was somebody there, and fortunately, our guys started shooting back, and so we managed to get back without getting shot and uh, shortly dispatched the machine gun with hand grenades. But that was our first KIA. It was hard for anybody to believe that, you know, somebody was actually dead. In 1965, then-Major Bruce Crandall flew Hueys in Vietnam in incredibly dangerous situations. As a major, Crandall felt it was his duty to fly in, and he asked for a volunteer to fly with him. Captain Ed Freeman, who Crandall had known for years, volunteered. They would both go on to receive the Medal of Honor for the actions performed at Yadrang. called all of my commanders forward, my helicopters, and told him what was going on and said, and asked for one volunteer aircraft to go with me. I never sent single aircraft or anything. Uh, anyhow, when um, I asked for volunteers, Ed Freeman volunteered to go. Ed and I had been together for uh, 10 years. I'm Uncle Bruce to his kids, and he's Uncle Ed to mine. And uh, he uh, wanted to go. And he wanted to lead it. Now, I'm the commander, so I explained that to him. And uh, we took off, and we uh, I knew they needed ammo. 
but as a courtesy, I called Hal Moore. I said, I've, I'm out here. I've got ammo on board. Do you want it? And of course he said, yes. And we went in and as we were unloading the ammo, we, we saw all those wounded. So we started loading wounded. And uh, instead of going all the way back to play me, we went to the fire base, which was five miles. It was 14 half miles to to play me. We do two and a half miles in a minute, so or two miles a minute, and uh, so we a ten minute round trip gave us time to load ammo at the ammo at, out of, at the fire base, and we'd unload that out of one side while they're loading wounded on the other, uh, in 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 X-ray, and uh, we we did that for fourteen and a half hours. Uh, my my award says we went in twenty two times, but I went in seven times from the other base, and so uh, a five mile trip was. We were we went there a lot more times than twenty two. Uh, we don't know how many. We changed aircraft. I changed uh, back to one of them that was shot up. They checked it out and duct taped the holes. And, and uh, I flew it again because there's no fluid leaks. And there's no binding. You've got to fly them. You're not a you're not a safety officer. You're not in the states. It's you have to fly. And, and I and we did. The next morning I was ready to go again uh, to take in uh, A Company, the second, the seventh, and then bring the rest of them. And uh, the people in the landing zone got hit. So we had to delay it. I didn't know why I was being delayed. I was just told, sit. And I sat for an hour or so when I wish I had been airborne, uh, at, at least not carry in their troops, but at least carry out their wounded. So uh, we, uh, the next, that was the 15th. We, we, we got the uh, second or seventh, it was closed in. The first or fifth came cross country, and and uh, we we continued to supply them and uh, take out the wounded. So that was the sixteenth. We was a uh, start to clear out of there. We had a B fifty two strike scheduled, and it was the first time a B fifty two raid was used in support of a unit contact. But uh, the requirement is you'd be two miles away. I don't know whose that was, but it's not a bad idea because they're bombing from a high, very high altitude. And uh, they, the unit that moved to Albany got into it real heavy. So we lost over 300 killed in the, in the battlefield for, oper for the operation known as the Adrang. It was the heaviest losses any units that it uh, uh, felt during that uh, first few years in uh, Vietnam, but it also established that the helicopters could handle it. And uh, so the, the infantry always knew we'd be there. And uh, that was the best thing that we did was confirm the confidence of the infantry in our helicopters. We knew we'd do it. They just needed to know it too. And now it's common. We're using some of the same aircraft. The Chinooks that are in Afghanistan doing the high-level stuff were in our unit in Vietnam 50 years ago. 
I was doing it because it was my duty to, to the guys on the ground. I was responsible for them as far as I was concerned. But you learn whether you have fear uh, that, that you can't overcome. I learned that it didn't, when I got out of the aircraft, it didn't follow me. I learned that uh, if you trusted your men, they performed. I learned that you, even if you don't know the people on the ground, they'll protect you and they expect you to do the same for them. Uh, so it's a team. And when I came home, I, I learned how much I missed my family and how, how important it was to, to have family time because the boys I had three sons were starting to grow up. And uh, 12 months and 12 days later, I was back in Vietnam with the cow. Ed Freeman got a battlefield commission in Korea on Porkchop Hill. He was an engineer. Uh, he was my boss at one time in Panama. When I saw his name coming in, I put him in my outfit. And then I went and found him and I told him, Ed, uh, I would like to have you serve in my unit. He was uh, a great friend for 55 years. He uh, got the Medal of Honor in 2001. In the CAF, we had no, no way of doing awards because I was short 20 door gunners. So my clerks and cooks, and they flew as door gunners. We could do a distinguished flying cross because it'd be approved at division level. Well, Ed Freeman uh, was nominated by the infantry for the, the medal, and I was nominated. And I got a phone call that we were going to the same board. And I said, there's nothing wrong with that. That sounds great. He says, no, you don't understand. They're going to establish that Ed was in the second helicopter and followed you all the time. So those 14 hours, he's, he's your wingman. But he's the only one to volunteer. I'm the commander. I have to go see. So I had mine withdrawn. I, and I did it rather vulgarly. I called the, the three-star general and told him to shove mine up his uh, I'm not accepting the Medal of Honor. And Freeman, uh, I, and I told him, I said, if Freeman doesn't get a fair shake, I'm going to come after you because you just tried something and I'll make it. And I know a lot of four-star generals. And uh, he got the picture because I hung up. I probably should have been a little more polite. But seven years later, I got it. And I don't know who put me in. I don't know how that happened. I know that no, no, nobody in the aviation had anything to do with Freeman's award or my award because I wanted it to be from the infantry because that's where we were supporting them. I don't want it coming from my guys and from us because it doesn't look, it doesn't pass the smell test. Ed uh, got the award and it was the best thing ever happened to him. Uh, it brought his pride back. He, he lived another five years. The only th criticism I had is he wouldn't loan it to me. Nah, you don't loan the award out, but it makes a good story. By the end of the Vietnam War, Crandall had flown over 900 combat missions. After a short break, we will hear a story 
from journalist Joe Galloway about his experience during the Battle of the Yadrang Valley. November 11th is Veterans Day, a day our nation has declared as a celebration to honor America's veterans for their patriotism, love of country, and willingness to serve and sacrifice for the common good. Join VVMF online for a ceremony held at the Wall in Washington, D.C. We will be streaming the broadcast on our webpage or on Facebook at 1 p.m. Eastern. 2022 marks the 40th anniversary of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, and our commemoration has already started. Every day at 3 p.m. on our website, Facebook page, and YouTube channel, we'll be reading the names of those who died on that day in the Vietnam War, which means that next week you could hear the names and see the faces of those who died in the Battle of the Yadrang. You can find the daily reading on our website at vvmf.org slash ROTN or our Facebook page. For a lot of people, it isn't easy to visit the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. So VVMF created the Wall That Heals, an exact replica of the wall at three-quarters scale that travels to communities all across America. The Wall That Heals and the Mobile Education Center that travels with it will be in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, November 11th through the 14th. This is the final stop of our 2021 season, and we look forward to announcing our 2022 schedule soon. Finally, what songs do you most associate with the Vietnam War or era? We're collecting songs and stories for a podcast episode. If you have a story to share, you can. Email us at echoes at vvmf.org or leave us a short voicemail at 1-202-330-0963. Joe Galloway, a civilian reporter working for United Press International, made it a point to spell correctly the names of those whom he interviewed in Vietnam. He knew their mothers might be reading the paper and that they might cut out that story and send it back to their sons. And so getting it right mattered. He also was passionate about telling the stories of the men and women who served in Vietnam and other conflicts. It was Sunday, November 14th, 1965. One day past my 24th birthday. And uh, big, big things were happening in the Central Highlands. I'd been up there for several weeks covering things, and there were attacks. And the 1st Cavalry Division is sending a battalion out into no man's land, uh, you know, an area where really no one's gone before. And uh, we're able to do this because of the helicopter. This, this is going to be the event that tests whether the helicopter really is going to be the weapon of choice in Vietnam or the mode of transport. No longer would the infantry have to walk. They would fly to work. 
or that was the theory anyway, and we're going to find out. And uh, I spent that night of my birthday uh, in a foxhole that I dug under a tea bush on a plantation where the brigade headquarters for the 3rd Brigade of the 1st Cab were located. And uh, they, they were loading up a company to fly in on this operation and they had all the Hueys lined up and, and I scooted along and found a vacant seat and got in it. And uh, here come a guy down the line and he's got a medic with him and he's looking for a place. And he looks at me and says, who are you? I said, I'm a reporter, get out of there. And he puts the medic in my seat. Can't argue with that. But I was upset that I couldn't go in on the first lift. And I went to see the brigade commander, uh, Colonel Tim Brown, said, look, I need to get in there. And he said, look, it's probably gonna be a long, hot walk in the sun and no action. But just in case, if anything happens, I'm gonna go out there. I got my command helicopter and I'll give you a ride. Well, wasn't an hour later that something did happen and uh, all hell broke loose. And the colonel comes zooming out of his headquarters heading for his chopper and I'm right behind him. So Colonel Brown flies out to the site of this battle. Not hard to find because the smoke rising off that battlefield is 5,000 feet in the air. And we circle around and he's talking to Colonel Moore on the ground. And he wants to land and Colonel Moore's waving him off. He says, look, this LZ is just hotter than a pistol. You land that command helicopter with all those antenna on it in here and you're gonna have to walk home. They'll shoot it to pieces. And so we're obviously not gonna get to land. And just about then, an A1E Air Force Sky Raider bomber, fighter bomber, zooms below us. And he's trailing a hundred feet of uh, fire and smoke. And uh, they're yelling, uh, anybody see a shoot? Anybody see a shoot? And it was my side of the helicopter. So I was leaning out and I watched him all the way. And I clicked the mic and said, uh, no shoot, no shoot. He rode it into the ground. And uh, he's still there today. But we were waved off and the colonel dumped me in a uh, artillery fire base about three, four miles away. And uh, I spent the afternoon there looking for a helicopter ride to get into the battle. And they were hard to come by. And as I spent the afternoon, four or five other reporters turned up, including my nemesis, Peter Arnett of the Associated Press. Uh, I had marched with Colonel Moore's battalion three days before and spent the night with them up in the hills, very cold up on those mountain plateaus. So I spotted a captain rushing by and I knew that it was Colonel Moore's operations officer, Captain Matt Dillon, and I grabbed him and I said, Matt, I need a ride in. He said, I'm going in as soon as it's dark with two Hueys full of ammo. I said, I want a ride. And he said, I can't, I can't say yes. It's got to be the Colonel. I said, get him on the radio. Uh, 
So I followed him into the tent and he got Colonel Moore. I could hear the battle going on in the handset of the radio. And uh, he reported to the colonel what he was bringing and when. And then he said, that reporter Galloway wants to come along. And the response of Colonel Moore was, I was listening very close. He said, if he's crazy enough to want to come in here and you got room, bring him. So then all I had to do was hide from the other reporters until it got near dark. And they flew back to Pleiku for a hot meal and a cold bunk and a warm shower. And uh, I got a ride into the pages of history. The following morning, the second morning of the battle, uh, I was sitting with my back against a little scrub oak tree. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, the, the world came apart. Two battalions of the enemy were attacking a company size section of our perimeter. And we were located right behind them. Uh, probably no more than 30 yards or so. And everything the enemy fired at, at that company that didn't hit something passed right through where we were sitting or laying because I fell over flat on my face, flattening out as flat as I could get because everything in the world was sailing through just about knee high, all kinds of lead. I uh, felt a thump in my ribs and I looked down and, uh, and it was a combat boot. And I looked up and it was Sergeant Major Basil Plumley, a bear of a man out of West Virginia. And he bent over and over the din of battle, which is truly deafening. You, you have no idea how loud war is until you're in the middle of it. And he leans over waist, bends at the waist, and yells down in his loudest voice, uh, can't take no pictures laying there on the ground, Sonny. And uh, I, th I thought about it and realized he was right. And I got up and I followed him, which is a smart thing to do if you're a war correspondent. Follow someone who's got stripes on his arm. You can't go too wrong that way. And especially in the case of Sergeant Major Plumley, this was his third war. He had done World War II. He made all four combat jumps of the 82nd Airborne, Sicily, Salerno, Normandy, and Holland. Uh, and one combat jump in Korea, and here he was on his third war. And uh, he, uh, he knew that we were in some dire danger of being overrun. And he was gathering up what kind of a battalion reserve he could, including one reporter. Uh, and he went over to the battalion surgeon and the medical platoon sergeant, Sergeant Keaton. And he pulled out his 45 and he jacked around into the thing and he hollered at them, gentlemen, prepare to defend yourselves. And the doc looked like he had been shot. I mean, he'd been drafted out of his residency and he was an honorary captain is what it really is. 
And he certainly didn't expect he was going to have to use that 45 he was carrying. Plumley was doing what he felt he should do. And uh, as this battle progressed, I, I, you know, Hollywood has the sergeant major giving me an M16. It didn't happen that way. I brought my own. I carried an M16 and a lot of loaded magazines in my pack. You know, there are some events that are so horrific and so immediate that you cannot be a neutral observer. You can't be the civilian non-combatant who stands apart from this thing. These are people who are laying down their lives so that you might live and you owe them something too. And I carried water, I carried the wounded, and I eventually picked up the M16 and did what I had to do. Because you can have the greatest story in the world. If you don't live to tell it, it dies with you. So I did what I, what I had to do, and I make no bones about it. That was my first tour in Vietnam. I went on to do three more, and I went on to cover Americans at war for 43 years. I never saw again any battle so immediate, so violent, so bloody, you know, in a matter of four days and nights, 234 young Americans were killed. And the truth is not a single one of us left that place the same man who arrived there. It changed us all. It changed our lives. For me, 80 young Americans had laid down their lives so that I might live lived to tell their story. And I knew that I owed them and really all soldiers and Marines a, a sacred obligation to tell their stories. That's a, that's a heavy burden, but one that I bear proudly in. And I have spent my life since those days, 50 years now, half a century, uh, trying to fulfill that obligation. On August 18th, 2021, Joe Galloway passed away. Our CEO and president, Jim Knotts, had this to say. Joe was an author, award-winning newspaper correspondent, and civilian reporter during the Vietnam War. Joe was awarded the Bronze Star Medal for helping rescue wounded soldiers during the Battle of the Yadrang Valley in November 1965. This battle was depicted in the movie We Were Soldiers, starring Mel Gibson. But Joe spent his career with the troops during multiple wars, always telling the story of the war from the soldier's perspective. Most of all, in our experience, Joe was an outspoken, irascible, and usually unfiltered advocate for Vietnam veterans. We will miss his voice, his unique perspective, and his kindness to our troops. The Battle of the Yadrang Valley cannot be told in one story or even three. It is hundreds of perspectives, hundreds of young men who did not come home, and many others who did, and try to help us all better understand what happened. Due to the incredible heroism of many of those who fought in the Battle of the Yadrang Valley, the 1st Cavalry became the first unit in Vietnam to receive the Presidential Unit Citation. 
Thanks for checking out the official podcast from the founders of The Wall in Washington, D.C. We publish a new episode every two weeks, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like it, there are a couple of easy things you can do to help support it. One is to share it with a friend who might like it as well. Another thing that helps us out tremendously is if you leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. You'd be surprised how much that little action helps new listeners find us.